If you're new this morning, we're working through a series of sermons uh, on the components of our worship service, on the components of our liturgy. And last week, we looked at the Christian liturgical calendar by which we live in a very intentional way throughout the, the year by a different story, by the story of the gospel. And now we're moving front to back in our series, and we're starting not with the announcements, but with the call to worship and looking at what does this mean in our worship service? What is it actually calling us to do? But before we do that, would you pray with me as we get started? Gracious God, we ask you that you meet us. However we may find ourselves this morning, whether we're convinced or unconvinced, whether we're curious or skeptical, whether we're trying to believe again after many years away, we come from different places, not only spiritually, but emotionally. Some of us are excited, some of us are joyous, some of us are bitter and sad. Some of us have shown up this morning simply because that's what we do. Church has become routine, it's become mundane, and we need to be woken up. Some of us come as an act of heroic courage. We've sat all this week under the dark cloud of depression, and it's taken everything in us to get out of bed and come to this place, and we need to hear from you that it's going to be okay and that you haven't forgotten us. However we walk into this room this morning, help us to believe that you care for us enough that you invited us here, that you invited us here to feed upon your grace, that you see us in all of our success as well as our failure, that you see us in our confidence and our confusion, that you see all of our consistencies and inconsistencies, and that you love us, that you look upon us as a delighted father. Help us to believe that. Call us out of our distractions, out of our self-importance, out of our delusions of control. Would you help us to worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I try not to use a whole lot of illustrations from marriage because obviously not everyone is married, and I have to take the extra step of checking in with Katie to make sure I've got my facts straight. But I, this morning I wanted you to compare the differences or think about the differences between dating and marriage. And when you're dating, you notice very quickly and naturally the things that are very much in common together. You you come upon the fact that you love the same music, you have the same dreams, you think the same politically, you do the same things for adventure and exercise, and it, it draws you together. But the funny thing is, even the differences seem to be magnetic somehow when you're dating. They're cute, they're endearing. But when you get married a few years in, these differences, these idiosyncrasies, these particularities may not be quite so cute any longer you realize that one person in the marriage is an early riser and the other's a night owl. You realize that one's a very light sleeper and one snores really loud. I'm not speaking from personal experience, of course, but no one, you discover one likes to be around people and is energized by people and the other one likes to be left alone. One likes to get things done around the house on Saturday. The other one would like to watch college football and then take a long nap. <laughs> well, part of the allure, the romance of marriage is the otherness of the spouse, the fact that they are different than you. 
that you're compelled to learn more. You're compelled to look inside and see how they're different. And you, you come to appreciate the fact that they have these idiosyncrasies and they can be somehow attractive. But often the same things that draw us to our spouse can become the things that at sometimes irritate us after a number of years. The things that once were cute become sort of annoying. And in those areas, sometimes we think, well, maybe I can change them. Maybe I can get them out of that pattern. Maybe I can woo them out of this way that they go about life. And we begin to try to remake our spouse in our own image, in the way that we want our spouse to be. If you think about it, this is somewhat parallel to our relationship with God, that we have certain expectations of God, that we want him to behave in a certain way, that we want to sort of remake him in our image. In the groundbreaking book on how Americans view religion, Habits of the Heart, one of the researchers uh, describes an interview with a woman named Sheila Larson, and Sheila describes her faith as Sheilaism. She says, I believe in God, I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Maybe that's a fairly crass and honest description, but it's, it's fairly common in the way that we try to fashion God in our own image. In marriage, we're confronted with someone who is other, who is different. And in worship, we're confronted with a God that is not like us, that he seems foreign. And he doesn't just seem that way, but the, the Bible describes him over and over as holy other. And at times this otherness draws us in. It's attractive, it's inviting, it's alluring, but at other times this otherness is off-putting. It's strange, and we would rather squeeze God into our, our, our image. Well, the call to worship guards us against worshiping God in our own image, which is really self-worship. It invites us into a relationship that is sustained by us suppressing our expectations, by us submitting our wishes to His truth, by us leaving ourselves and the tyranny of trying to be the center of the universe. The call to worship is stepping into the presence of God who wants to change us, who wants to call us out of ourselves. And we're going to look this morning just at two different facets of this. The call to worship tells us and reminds us of who we were. If you're a Christian, it tells you who you were. And then it also tells you now and calls you into the person you are and the person you're becoming. So first of all, who we were. Verse 13 that we read says that you were far away. And what that means is he's speaking here to Gentiles, that they were far away from the covenant promises, the, the presence of God in the temple. They were at a great distance, and they were separate from Christ. They were foreigners excluded from the covenant and without hope. But you see, then Jesus comes, and everything changes Jesus bridges this distance. He runs through and goes and gets these foreigners, you and I, goes and gets the Gentiles and brings them in. In verse 17, it says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, that is, the Jewish people, Israel. Jesus, you see, incarnates what is holy other 
what is totally foreign, what is holy. He is God in the flesh, and He comes and brings the presence of God in a new way. He closes this distance between God and humanity. He closes this distance between God and the Gentiles, between Him and you and I. To those who are far away, He brings God near. And this is exactly the opposite of how we often think about spirituality. Spirituality is that which we aspire to. It's how we seek out God, how we walk towards God. And instead, what the gospel is saying, what Christianity says, is that God comes to us, that God bridges the distance, that the story of the Bible, as I said in the baptism, is not the story of humans pursuing God, It's the story of humans often being obstinate and insubordinate and not wanting nothing to do with God and God continuing to pursue them and seek them out and bless them with His grace. The gospel says that Jesus became a human, that God became a human, and that He bridges this great chasm. He takes people who were far away from God and people who, who were near by virtue of belonging to the covenant people of God and puts them in the very same spot. He gives them the very same position, the same access. And what Paul is saying is that Israel had this rich heritage of belonging to the very center of God's heart, that for reasons known only to God, that he blessed Israel and that he inhabited who they were, that he gave them particular promises, that he pulled back the curtain, as it were, and showed them the truth of who he was and how the world really worked. And in those promises, he's telling them that through them, that all of history would come to a climax, that all of what is wrong with the world would be healed through someone who would come out of Israel. And this is incredibly interesting because who is Israel? What did they have to recommend them to God? What did they have in and of themselves that would make God say, you know, I can use this people to propagate the truth of the gospel all around the Mediterranean basin and all around the world? Well, they had nothing. And by their own account in the Old Testament, apart from a a short time where they were a unified kingdom with a king on the throne, they were divided. They were enslaved often. They were exiled and then later occupied. And they were, again, by their own admission, a generally unthankful bunch. They were insubordinate towards God. They were, culturally speaking, very, very insignificant. They didn't have a a Parthenon or an empire. They didn't have a great wall. And historically speaking, who was near? Well, the Jews, this insignificant, minor, oppressed ethnic group, with this very colorful history, they were slaves who were rescued and then unthankful, who worshipped sort of whatever was in front of them. But who was far? Who was far away? Well, think of the greatest empires known to man at that point in history, the greatest civilizations, the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, those that had achieved the most culturally speaking, architecturally, artistically, politically, economically, You see, he's not saying that they were far away because they were uncivilized barbarians, not because they were backwards or a regressive sort, not because they were particularly violent or immoral. 
And conversely, Israel wasn't near because they were more moral, more upright, more consistent spiritually. They weren't better people. They were near because God had moved toward them, because he had appointed them to be special recipients of his grace. Not more deserving, but what brought them near was God's gracious work of explaining to them the way things really are, the truth about the world, the truth about God, and how God working through them, this insignificant little tribe, that through that tribe, that a future Messiah would come to bring peace and healing to the whole world. What set them apart was that God had drawn near to them and had given them hope for the future, hope for the world, hope for themselves. There's a place in Woody Allen's movie, Love and Death, which is sort of a a parody on Russian literature and the, the deep introspective dialogues that happen in Russian literature. And Woody Allen's character, Boris, is talking to Diane Keaton's character and says, Sonia, what if there is no God? And Sonia says, Boris Dimitrovis, are you, are you joking? And Boris says, what if, what if we're just a bunch of absurd people who are running around with no rhyme or reason? Then Sonia says, but if there is no God, life has no meaning. Why go on living? Why not just commit suicide? Well, says Boris, let's not get carried away. Let's not get hysterical. I could be wrong. I'd hate to blow my brains out and then read in the papers the next day they'd found something. The call to worship says that we found something. In fact, actually, the call to worship says we've been found, that God has sought us out and has given us reason to have hope in this sad world. He's given us reason to have hope in the midst of our own broken lives and our own sinful lives. The call to worship invites us to recognize who we were, people staring down a cul-de-sac, people without a future, people without hope, and yet who have been rescued by God and given hope. But it also summons us to give thanks, the call to worship does, to give thanks to God for who we are. And who are we? Who are we if we are Christians this morning? Verse 13 says you've been brought near, that you have access to the truth, access to God the Father. Not a movement of degrees, but a movement of entire dimensions. This isn't God pulling the curtain back only to show you the inner workings of Oz. This is God coming out from behind the curtain and giving you all of the riches of Oz. You see, in being brought near, you've been taken from a foreigner, an alien, and you've ascended to the throne. You've become royalty. You've moved from that of a slave to a son or a daughter. And the Jewish people, Israel, was near, and so they probably got this movement slightly more quickly than the Gentiles because they had this rich heritage of images and symbols that symbolized how God had moved towards them as a people. And Paul echoes this symbolism, the symbolism of the temple, particularly in verses 21 and 22, where he, where Israel went to meet with God in the temple, and there was, these different, there was these different courts that were signifying different levels of relationship. And outside of the temple, you have the portico, which is where you go to, to buy animals and exchange currency. And then there's the large courtyard where everyone can go in. 
And then there's further in the court of the women, where only Jewish people can come into the temple. And then the court of the Israelites, where only men can come in. And then further still, you have the court of the priests, and then the holy of holies. And so you see that there's this great movement getting closer and closer to God means less and less people can go. And what Paul is saying is that those who were farthest away, those who might as well have been on the other side of the world, those with no claims upon God, have been invited into the holy of holies, into the very bosom of God. That the temple was a a physical representation of a spiritual reality, that God was wholly other that it was so dangerous to encounter God that you had to hide him behind these thick walls and thick curtains and that no one could go in except for the high priest once a year. He was wholly other. He was foreign. A God who to be seen meant death. But now in Christ, all of that has changed. Those walls have come down. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been been torn down. And everyone has equal access to God. You see, what Jesus has done, instead of keeping the foreigners outside the temple, he's taken the presence of God outside the temple to bring the foreigners in, to bring you and I in. Those with the the least claim upon God, he's taken up we've taken up resonance at the very center of his heart. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews, who is writing to uh, Jewish Christians, says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What does it look like to draw near to God in assurance of faith? It isn't that before you draw near to God, you better make sure that you have enough faith. When you come to the table, you've got to make sure that your reservoir of faith is all filled up and you have this great storehouse of faith. Then you can go and meet with God. In fact, however, the deciding factor is not your reservoir of faith, your amount of faith. Coming forward in assurance of faith is drawing near to God despite what you have done or have not done, but solely because of what God has done on your behalf solely because Jesus came and lived the life that you were meant to live and died the death that was your death to die. And there was this great exchange to where now you're clean, now you're holy, now you're received into the holy of holies and into the very bosom of God's heart. John writes in John, the epistle of John chapter 1, to all who received him, He gave the right to become children of God. Do you understand what that means? That you have been invited into God's very presence, not as an interloper, but as a child, as a son or a daughter. When I was a pastor in Silicon Valley, I would often meet with parishioners at the Apple campus, which was always a lot of fun. And Uh, We would go to the cafeteria, and often it happened more times than you would think. Steve Jobs would walk in, and he would go through the cafeteria line and get lunch, 
And everyone in the cafeteria would keep talking, but you knew that they were kind of looking to see where Steve was and just kind of watching what he was doing. They'd be following him with their eyes. And one of the things that he was most notorious for was sort of inspiring this divine fear in lower employees that they might get cornered by Steve Jobs, that they might find themselves on, the, on an elevator or in a hallway with him alone and not know all of the ins and outs of whatever project they were working on and get cornered by Steve. And often what Steve would do was would he would actually exploit that and play games with people. But he inspired this incredible respect and fear. And so imagine with me a moment getting an invitation to his office. You have probably been up half the night thinking about your project, you're on your third cup of coffee, and you walk down the hallway, you get past his secretary, you get past the other staff, and you get to the door and you, you knock, um, Mr. Jobs, are you in there sort of hoping he's not? And you have on your, your best khakis, you have dressed up for the occasion with your golf shirt, and you, you head into his office finally, and you're not going to do anything unless he tells you. You're not going to sit down unless he asks you to. You're going to be very proper and you're going to be very much afraid. But if his daughter runs in behind you, maybe she's gotten off early from school and she runs in screaming, Daddy, Daddy, and jumps up into his lap, maybe knocks over some pencils on his desk. She wants to tell him all about school and all about her friends. She doesn't care that he's Steve Jobs. She doesn't care about his reputation. She's not minding her P's and Q's and looking at what she has on. She's just being herself. And that's intimacy. That's freedom. That's the full assurance of love that only a child has. And if you're a Christian this morning, that's who you are. Who you were is a foreigner, an alien, someone walking away from God, looking down the cul-de-sac. And now, you have become a child of God. And as a child of God, you're called into His presence. You're called into worship each and every week and each and every day. And that's worship, you see, being childlike before God. Worship is not sycophancy. It's not servile flattery. It's simply coming to God as a child. It's coming before God in dependency. And you see, the the leading edge then of Christian spirituality is not achievement. It's not climbing the ladder. It's not checking off the boxes. It's neediness. It's dependency. It's childlike faith. And therefore, the best, quote-unquote, Christians among us aren't those who are most consistent, aren't those who are most dutiful, but those who are most honest, those who are most willing to be seen those who are most willing to be vulnerable, vulnerable first before God and then before others, those who are most ready to admit need and get help. And what the call to worship does is it says, come get help. Come find salvation. Come and lay your life down at my cross and let me give you my life. That's what Jesus says. My life for yours. The call to worship is come get help. Come and worship through your neediness. Who we were, far away and without hope, who we are is sons and daughters with hope. Let's pray to that end. 
Gracious God, we pray that we would somehow learn to drop our posturing, to drop our pretense, to be honest about who we are. And Father, I pray that that would begin each and every week as we are called to worship as a church. As a church, we would drop our posturing and pretense and pretending that we're something we're not and be the church that you love and be where we are in process. Lord, I pray that as people, as individuals, as families, we would do the very same same thing, that we would be called out of the, the tyranny of guiding and trying to control our own life and give ourselves over to you. Lord, I pray as we continue to worship, as we confess our faith, as we come to the table, that you would call us out of our self-regard and self-importance and let us simply rest and be children, children whom you love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.